Okay, everybody, let's go ahead and come on in and take our seats. And if I could have uh, Jackson, would you mind closing the back doors and the side door over here just to make sure we shut the ark, you know, before it's too late? Um, all right. Hey, great to see you, everybody. Hey, on, uh, oh, sorry. I mean, I had nothing to do with that. I was just talking. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, lost my train of thought. Okay. On weekends like this, on weekends like this, when there's so much on everybody's minds, uh, whether you're here for the wedding and you've got wedding on the mind, or whether you're, uh, you've been involved in the parsonage and, and thinking about work that needs to be wrapped up or done, or maybe you've just got several kids and you've got a busy life going on, and sometimes we sit down in church and suddenly we just relax and all the thoughts kind of run toward all those other things, and the blessing that the Lord has for us gets kind of lost. And so on weekends like this, I really like to encourage us, encourage myself, to leave off churches and leave off all the parts of church that are an academic exercise, okay? Um, don't, if, if taking notes distracts you, don't take notes. Uh, we've, got, uh, we, we've got this remarkable thing now called the Internet. And you can go onto our website and you can download the services and take all the notes you want afterward. Uh, what I would really encourage you to do is just on days like this when we're so busy and um, other things are going on, to just try to absorb. Uh, absorb what the Lord has for you. And from if, if anything sticks out to you technically or anything sticks out to you like a single point, like I need to remember that, I need to write that down, memorize that, well then go back and get that. But otherwise, I fear that I just don't want us to lose the blessing that God has. So just really try to absorb what the Lord has for us today. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. In the service this morning, we've been, we're going to keep working through the book of Ephesians. And we land on Ephesians 6.4 today. Ephesians 6.4 reads like this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath but raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Actually, it should be translated like this, but be nurturing them in the discipline and um, instruction in the Lord. And the word discipline there doesn't mean so much discipline as in the sense of the rod or punishment or groundings or something like that. It would be more like if you were watching the Olympics and they said the and you were watching gymnastics, let's say, and they said the, the, the defending gold medalist in this discipline um, is out with injury. Well, what does that mean? It's a, it's a course of study. It's a field of expertise. It's a unique element. And that, the word discipline has a lot of different meanings, and it's a whole realm. So we'll discover what all that means in the morning service. But one thing that I'd really like to do is when I have a verse that's sort of so small and compact like that, I like to take adult Sunday school to fill it out a little bit so that we can anticipate what the Lord might have for us in the worship service. We can cover some of the things that we just don't have time for in a regular worship service, especially one where we're observing the Lord's table. Make sense, everybody? Okay. So I, have a, I, I want us to brainstorm for a minute before we get going by introduction here. And we've got some people in here who have some significant Bible training, so I expect some very good answers, okay? Let's brainstorm very quickly on who the exemplary fathers are in the Bible. Okay, God says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So who are the fathers that we can look to 
as dads, for inspiration on how to parent our own children. Who are they? Abraham, but Abraham had Hagar, and he kicked Ishmael out, and he went down to Egypt when he shouldn't have, and Abraham was, was, uh, was great, but there were some flaws, right? So who else? Yes, yes. That's very true, but David also had Absalom, and it says that Absalom was the way he was because David never said anything confrontational to him. Absalom was a prima donna who would annually weigh his hair. What dude does that, okay? He's putting his hair in scales, and David never said, stop, okay? Okay, who else? Joseph is in married in Joseph. Genesis Joseph? Hmm. I can see that, but I, what are, I don't remember. His sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, but I think that's about all we know of his parenting, correct? <laughs> okay, good. Safe choice. Okay, who else? It's hard to find a good example, isn't there? But there's Joseph of Mary and Joseph, and... We're only told really good things about him, but we don't have much by way of what he said or how he parented. Although he's one of the few dads that nothing negative about his parenting is said. Now, I did this for a reason. Abraham, who said Abraham Kirby? Abraham is clearly the best choice in the Old Testament. But he was flawed, wasn't he? You have Abraham, you have Joseph as in Mary and Joseph, and then what do you have? Job, yes, I forgot about Job. Job was a great example, great example. I think the point stands, though. We don't have a ton of great illustrations or examples to look to in the Bible, do we? The the presence of really good fathers in the Bible is few and far between. So, The next question is, why do you think God does that? Why do you think he's chosen to give us so few great examples? And I'm trying to think, do we ever have a scene where father sits down a son and has a private conversation about godliness and life and so forth? I can't think of any. I'm sure there are at least one or two. But why do you think God did this? Why in God's providence... And the book that gives us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness, why do you think he didn't give dads a lot of examples to follow? Why is that? That's right, Dirk. You want to say that nice and loud for everybody? Because he is the example. Because he's the example. All right. God wants dads to look to God for how to raise godly kids. And that much is very clear. Now, what we're going to do is work our way through the, the, the fatherhood of God. This is a doctrine that, unfortunately, in churches like ours, has fallen on hard times since about 1900. Okay? The fatherhood of God was a doctrine that was 
used and abused by liberal Christianity, and that became the only thing that was ever told of God. And as we sometimes do, we overreact and go the other way. But when we read the New Testament, the fatherhood of God is the essence of God. It's really his chief characteristic. Okay? So we know the Old Testament only sort of hints at the fatherhood of God. You might want to write these down if you'd like. Exodus 42, 23, uh, Exodus 4, rather, verses 22 and 23, it says that Israel was God's firstborn son. In fact, Moses is supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, um, let my firstborn Israel go, and if you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Okay? So God sort of called his shot right away, right from the very start of the story. Pharaoh knew what the... Uh, knew what the um, consequences would be for rebellion. In Psalm 103.13, we're told that as a father pities his children, so our father pities us. He shows compassion and mercy. He's gracious and kind. He doesn't always chide. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He doesn't expect more of us than he ought to. In Hosea 11.1, we're told that even when Israel was a child, God called Israel his son. The same is repeated in Isaiah 63, 16, and Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. God is Israel's father in the sense that he created them. He's their father in mercy and in redemption. The prophets were always saying, oh God, we've sinned so much. You've had to send armies against us, and still we haven't learned our lesson." But we look to you as the Father of mercy. Redeem us. Now, unfortunately, Israel would never throw off the foreign yoke of bondage until the ultimate redemption comes, which is still yet in the future. But God's people were instructed to look to God who called them, created them, wants to be related to them a certain way, who redeems them. But in all of these Old Testament uses, God is not the father of everybody. God is the father of Israel. It's not God's go-to metaphor, nor is it his go-to description of himself. It's used more poetically. God is like a father. God is as a father. Yet it's definitely hinted at all along. When we come to the New Testament, however, we have an explosion of fatherhood references. In fact, I had you turn to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, now, Matthew, more than Mark and more than Luke, talks about the fatherhood of God. Matthew and John sort of, now, it's not that the fatherhood of God is absent in Mark and Luke. It's just that Matthew and John really, truly focus in on the issue. Now, what we could do is go through all those uses, but there's too many of them. So what I want to do is focus on two places in the Gospels where the fatherhood of God is chiefly talked about. And then what I'd like to do is, at the end, meditate on what that should mean for our parenting. Okay? If we're to be looking to God as the example, the one true example of our fatherhood, then what should we be looking to do. And by the way, um, please don't limit your fathering, your parenting, to 
the years that your kids are cradle to 18. Um, now, I, I don't have grown children, but I'm told it only gets harder um, and more complicated, and I'm sure there are those of you here who will say such things. You know, you never, I've heard it said a, a, a zillion times, you never stop parenting, you never stop being mom and dad, that there's always a role for mom and dad in a child's life. Uh, and I, w I assume that it gets even more profound once they start having children and so forth. So everybody in here stands to benefit from meditating on the fatherhood of God. So we come to Matthew chapter 5, and in the first chapter of Matthew alone, we have more references to God as father than in the entire Old Testament combined. Okay, So right away here, right at the very first sermon that Jesus preaches that we have public access to, Matthew 5 verses, Matthew chapter 5 verses ch through chapter 7, Jesus begins talking about the fatherhood of God. Let's look at Matthew 5.16. Uh, I'm in Ephesians. I didn't even turn over where I told you to turn over. Sorry about that. Matthew chapter 5.16. God is a person that a father we should glorify. We see here in the same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. In chapter 5, verse 45, we see that God is the person to whom we pray. And in fact, that is the, that becomes sort of the chief, uh, the chief way of thinking of God in this sermon. God is a person to whom we pray. We pray to him in private. We pray to him in silence for chapter uh, 545, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Uh, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then he goes on to say, if you love those who only love you, then what good does that do you? We're told in chapter 6, as the sermon continues, five different times, five different times we're told that God is a rewarder, okay? God the Father is a rewarder. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who seek him in private. He's a rewarder of those who forgive their enemies. God is, God the Father is not only one whom we glorify, he's not only one whom we can go to with our requests, but when we bear the marks of our family, when we bear the marks of our Father because we've been looking at him and emulating him, God doesn't sit back on that and, and say, ah, that could have been better, that, that should have been more frequent. No, no, God rewards, God is diligent. Five times again, we're told that he's a rewarder. Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we're told that God is a proactive Father. Okay, He knows our needs and he cares. Let's pick up our reading in verse 7. And when you pray, don't heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's go down to verse 14. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here we see another aspect of the fatherhood of God. He forgives. God is a forgiving God. 
I hate to jump ahead to our application, but one of the most destructive things a father can do, actually, there's a few destructive things a father can do that we've already touched on, but one of them is to remind their children of their sins committed, to throw back up into their face the sins that they've committed and have been forgiven. Now, our children are going to do really stupid things. Okay. A few weeks ago, Peyton nearly chopped off his thumb. And it was a stupid thing he was doing. And last night, I needed a hand from him, and it required the use of his thumb. And right on the tip of my tongue was a smart remark about almost cutting his thumb off. But I knew what I was going to be preaching the next day. <laughs> so I choked it down. <laughs> That's a mild one. But when your son wrecks the car, or when your daughter cheats on a test, or gets caught in a lie, there's a way to throw these sins back up into the faces of our children that humiliates them further. And that is not how God forgives us, does he? God is compassionate. He forgives. He releases. In fact, so passionate is God for forgiveness that he holds people accountable when they refuse to forgive. This is one of the chief aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. If there is a character trait that God wants his children to share, it is that of being forgiven, of being uh, forgiving toward others. And God wants us to consider just how much he's forgiven us as we consider how much we forgive others. Matthew chapter 7, 21. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 7, 21. This is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and so forth. So we ought not, we, we know that God knows, we know that God cares, God listens to our prayers, God rewards us when we bear the marks of the family, God is forgiving, but God is also a, a father who expects his children to act a certain way. He says, many will say, Lord, Lord, but they don't know me. God wants his children to walk in consistency, in, like I said, bearing the family marks of our father. And he holds us accountable. He even introduces pain into our lives when we are found wanting in marks of the family. God is passionate to bring forth himself in us. He wants to see little godly ones, people like him, walking around, moving about, calling him their father. He wants us to value in the family what he values. And so God holds us accountable to do such things. So God is, God is a father, but he's not a squishy father. Okay? Nor is God an austere father. And that's typically where we tend to falter, right? One on one or the other side of those. And God is neither. He holds both perfectly in tension. And he brings us forward. Now, I had you 
turn, we, we could look at many, many other fatherhood passages, but there's one more, concent- there's another concentration of fatherhood, and that's in John 5, so turn there. There's a lot of them in here. Uh, John chapter 15, verses 17 through 47. And this is Jesus discussing how he's the son and God is the father and how we relate in between. John 5, 17 through 47. John chapter 5, verses 17 through 27. But Jesus answered them. The Jews had come to him and they were upset because he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So in verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Well, right there in just those first few verses, we have a bunch of things that the father does. The father, I want us to notice that the father takes the lead in matters of redemption. Okay, let's look right here at verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus says, as I'm walking on this earth, I look out in the world and I see the fingerprints of God's salvation and how God the Father is taking the lead in redemptive matters. And I get behind that redemption and move it forward. And I don't do anything without the Father's doing it first. Jesus, the Son, is following God the Father into the execution of redemption. Okay? God is the architect. God is the initiator of redemption. He takes the lead in redemption. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. We see here that it's the Father who raises the dead to life. God is the one who, God the Father resurrects us. God the Father gives us life. Let's go down to chapter 5, verse 22. This might shock you. This might shock you, what Jesus is about to say. Let this settle in on your assumptions of God. Okay, you ready for this? The Father judges no one. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus, the Son, will judge the world. Jesus, the Son, will cry out the sentence. The Father judges no one, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we see that the Father delegates all judgment to Jesus, and furthermore, the Father takes the lead in turning everyone's attention to Jesus. It's the Father who's consistently pointing to his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Everybody pay attention to him. Everybody look at him. Everybody honor him. Okay? The Father's not judging, but turning people to the person who makes their salvation possible. Let's go down to chapter 5, verses 36 through 38. There's many more in here, but I'm just giving us a little taste and dipping in, and I want to make sure we save a little time for meditation here. 36 through 38. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What have we said in the past about triple repetitions? Anybody remember when we see a triple repetition, what should we do? Anybody? Really pay attention. That's, that's fair. Underline it, highlight it. That's the author's way of putting an exclamation mark on it. So what's the triple repetition here? What's the triple repetition? Yes, Keely. Sent. Yes, Keely, good. Sent, sent, sent. The Father is a what? A sender. The Father sends his Son into the world. The Father looked out and saw the plight of the world. The Father understood mankind's need, and the Father is the one who sent. Three times, we're told, sent Jesus on his mission. Now, Jesus takes great comfort in this sending, all throughout the book of John, you hear Jesus taking, um, taking comfort and inspiration. You hear Jesus taking great resolve from the fact of his father's sending. He has the father's smile, the father's approval, the father's initiative, the father's encouragement. How many of you, even as adult children, have wondered if you're going down the right path. And what do you do? You call dad. And you say, is this the right thing to do? How many of you have done that? Almost all of you. Why? Why do you instinctively reach out for dad? Because you want that, you want that bump. You want that confidence. You want that sense of mission and understanding that there's a person who knows you and wants your best and is going to compel you. And uncertainty can fly in the face, fly away in the face of knowing this human being, this father has told me I'm on the right path, so I'm going. It's remarkable the influence that fathers have. And here Jesus is saying, the, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. He takes, he who was made in every way like we are and with all of our emotions, took great comfort and mission in the Father's sending of him. Okay? Now, what I'd like us to do, we're cutting this short big time. Okay, there's so much more. But I'd like to take just what we've learned this morning 
and begin to apply that to some of our parenting. Okay, I'm going to give the first one as an example, and then you guys can go from there. Okay. I find that in my parenting, it is well nigh impossible not to judge. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Because... I'm often put in the position of judge, jury, and executioner, okay? Well, how easy is it to start jumping to conclusions? How easy is it not to listen? How easy is it to start making dictates? And compassion and mercy and patience sort of run away in the face of needing to make a judgment. Now, God has definitely put us in a position to direct our family to settle disputes between children occasionally. But I'm finding that all too often I'm doing that like a human would rather than like God would. And that needs God's grace. Okay? That's an example. Who else? I have a backup one, just in case nobody can think of one. Yes, Cynthia. You'd, oh, by the way, you don't have to be a dad to say this, because these equally, these moms play an absolutely vital role, too. So yes, you may go. Yes. And that excessive love leads him to do some seemingly contradictory things. He welcomes back a sinful son, and he confronts in love a harsh son. And th those seem like they contradict, but they don't. It's the same person from the same love. Others. Yes, Dave. That's good. That's good. Individual. Who else? Danelle.
I had, I had two, and I'll be very brief, on the idea of sending. What are we preparing, what am I preparing my children to do? To surround me and make my life happy with all sorts of blessings in my old age? Or am I preparing them to go out and see people redeemed? Um, or when my children go out and they're doing well, part of God's role as sender is to get behind that and initiate approval and kind words. You, son, are doing a great job in an uninitiated kind of way. And I, I know that when my dad has said that to me, that's just, my dad probably doesn't think of himself as being a great encourager, but it is a great encouragement whenever my dad does. Okay, who else? Anybody else? We've got about two minutes. Okay. All right. Well, let me challenge everybody. Uh, how many of us are parents? Just show of hands. I want to see. Okay. Lots and lots. Let's this week, as we think of our children. In everything we do with them, let's, let's be deliberate in thinking, how does this behavior illustrate to them God the Father? Does that make sense? How, 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 now, you're not going to be able to do that with every thought, especially if you've got little ones, right? But um, we've got a few folks in here that are changing diapers, okay? God cleans up our messes. There you go, Okay. Just teasing. That was for free. <laughs> it's kind of true. Um, <laughs> God provides. Okay. But yeah, just sort of let that wash over your thought process, and maybe that can be fuel for some parenting this week. All right. Let's pray, and uh, we'll go get ready for worship. Father, thank you so much for our time here this morning. We thank you that you're a father who loves and pities, who shows compassion. We're thankful that you're a father who forgives, a father who doesn't judge, but sent his son into the world to save us from the condemnation to come. We're thankful that you're a father who sends and gives us mission and purpose. Grace us now with, yes, your presence for our worship, but grace us with... Um, a spirit-filled ability to sing praise to you, to worship you, to listen to you, and to give you all that we have and are. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.